Good morning again. I should say this. I just said to the adults, this is an all play, but I forgot to tell you that that has nothing to do with the popsicle side of this story. So I just want to make it clear, I have popsicles for kids, not for the adults. So whatever like marshmallow bubble you had in your head, just pop that right away. Maybe I'll bring that next week. Come back next, come back next week. Maybe I'll bring popsicles. That'll be your treat moving forward. Also, come back next week because we're not done with this series. Uh, this series, which started on July 30th, uh, what originally started as a mini-series. It was supposed to be um, two, two sermons and a 40-day gap. And after we got done with those first two sermons, Jeff came to me and said, I like what we're doing here. I think we should do more of it. And so Jeff sort of uh, catered to what we were up to together and last week kind of bridged the series he was working on and the series that we're working on here together uh, into their own. So July 30th uh, was our first one. I titled that sermon, Put Your Own Oxygen Mask On First, followed up on August 6th, sermon titled Before Assisting Others, which was the continuation of the sentence from the week before. Then week three, as I said, was August 27th. Last week, Jeff preached a sermon titled Finally, brothers and sisters, and now you're on week four of a three-week series. And this week, we're going to talk about the identity of still. Next week, we're going to continue on as well. I don't know Alicia's sermon, but Alicia Patterson will be here next week. She will preach a sermon for us, and then we will conclude this series with our 40-day journey culminating in another opportunity to take communion. Because we offered that on August 6th, but we also offered it as an option. If you'd like to, if you feel that you're ready, if you feel like your life is in line with what Paul is calling you to do, to take this communion, to treat it well, to do the things that are required of you, to live your life in a specific way, then take communion. And if you're not ready, that's okay. There's a place for you as well. And so we left space in this sanctuary as well as in the community room. But we're going to come back again two weeks from now, and we're going to give everybody the opportunity to try it again to see whether or not you've taken 40 days on the spiritual journey with God and see whether or not it has changed you. Because the goal was for all of us to go on a 40-day challenge. Whether you went and had communion or not, if you were in this space and you stayed behind, then you remember potentially that there was cake and there was water and we went full Old Testament in this space. We did exactly as the angel did for Elijah. And you had the opportunity to stay and to rest and to have a Sabbath here in God's sanctuary. And your 40-day journey begins with the same place that Elijah did, which is you're about to go on a hike, and you're going to be sustained by this cake and this water for the next 40 days. So take and eat of these things. But if you went into the other room, you left that space with clean feet. You left that space full of the body and the blood of Jesus. And your 40-day journey was to keep your head up and to look around for anybody who might need the help of somebody with clean feet and a full belly to guide them through their 40-day journey. Because just like Elijah, he needed an angel, and potentially that became you the day you took communion. Now, using these scriptural references, we've walked around a couple of different spots, and you'll see in many different places there are many 40-day journeys, and we've keyed in mostly on Elijah's journey. And it's going to be no different today. I'm really going to look back into Elijah's story, because for the most part, we walk to the end of his 40-day journey, but that's not the end of Elijah's story there in 1 Kings. 
We're going to keep going through it. But I also want to pick up where Jeff started his sermon last week. His sermon last week began with, if you are on this journey and you are walking with God, then know this to be true. And his sentence was, the journey is worth it. Which is spoken exactly like someone who took communion on August 6th. And I know that he did, because I know Jeff facilitated the foot washing and the communion inside of that room. Now, I don't say this in a derogatory sense, and I certainly say this not to diminish the message that Jeff gave us, but only those who cross the finish line can testify to the truth of the matter, which is the journey is worth it. But now I ask the question, what about the rest of us? What about those who stayed here? What about those who don't know yet that the journey is worth it? What about those of us who are still stuck on, I don't know how it ends, I just know that it's still going. I know that it is still difficult. What's the message for them? What are the, what are the words that the people who need reprieve, what are the words that they need to hear? What are the words that somebody only has cake and water in their belly? What do they need to do next? So I wrote this sermon. I wrote this sermon not in deference, but it is a companion to Jeff's sermon to walk through the other side of it, to understand what that feels like from that perspective and to see what that looks like. And to do that, I have chosen to take a few friends with me. I have two friends. Their names are Becca and Danae. And Becca and Danae are incredibly adventurous people. Becca, who you see here uh, on your left, is turning 30 next month. She has made a challenge in her own life to climb 30 14ers by the time she hits 30. She's 29 now. She has less than a month to go. And for every peak, or nearly every peak, that Becca has climbed, Danae has been with her at her side. As a matter of fact, right now as we speak, I'm pretty sure at this hour, both of these lovely ladies are at the peak of Castle Mountain right now. Because it's Danae's birthday. It was Danae's birthday on Friday, and Danae wanted to climb a 14er with her friend, Becca. Now, I want to say this. Has anybody ever attempted a 14er here in this room? Okay, good. Some of you seem to like even still be sore as you lifted your arms up or like rolled your eyes as you did it. And maybe I should say this to people who are at home. I'm using Colorado language. Does anybody know what a 14er is here? A 14er, for those of you at home watching from a different state, a 14er is a mountain that is higher than 14,000 feet. So to climb a 14er means that you climb from some height to 14,000 feet and above. So you know just from the fact that you go up that high and where oxygen isn't, you'll know that climbing a 14er is grueling. Now I'll say this, in July of 2021, my friends here made a promise to one another to document any tears that they shed while on not a 14er hike, but just a long backpacking trip in hopes of capturing honest golden moments beyond just their summer, summit selfie the one that you take at the top with the cardboard that says that you made it with the big smiles. This is already one such photo. 
as I've said before, uh, Danae with the beautiful smile here, and Becca who is not smiling, not happy. This is day two of their journey, and Danae went with the promise to record all of these things. But unfortunately, this is not the worst of their story, because this was day two while the sun was still up. And in a moment, Brigitte's gonna show you a video of day two later that night, many miles later, many grueling steps later, many hungry minutes later. And because it's very quick, and because it is a cell phone video, and it is shot at night, let me give you some context. They're about to eat dinner. Becca has what is known as a jet boil in front of her, which is a rapid boiling pot. Inside of that pot is rice. And what happens next is that Becca goes to open one of the bags, what should be chickpea masala. But you know what happens when you're really tired? And you know what happens when it's dark? Sometimes chickpea masala and homemade granola look alike. Here's what happened next. Sometimes, sometimes crazes are in Indian food. <laughs> now we can play that one more time because it happens very quickly. But the line you're waiting for that Becca's about to say sometimes is. Sometimes craisins are in Indian food, aren't they? As she holds in front of her soggy, wet, craisin-filled rice granola. And all she wants to do is have dinner. And Danae, who you can hear cackling behind the camera, is going through this with her together. Now, I should say this as we go forward. I have express verbal permission to use these videos. Otherwise, I feel like my friendship with these two women would be in the past tense shortly after this hits the internet. So I should say that. And for anybody who's, you know, who's thinking about doing the same thing, ask your friends first. They're not even seeing this live. I'm not even sure after they see this that they'll think what they said that I could use this was a good idea. But because they already did, I continue. Picture number two. You will see this time, unfortunately, you'll need to assess this like a detective, but if you look here, the person in the blue hat closest to the frame is Danae. And if you look closely, you can see where Danae's feet are. And if you notice even further, there is sunlight reflecting off of Danae's left leg. And she's wearing yoga pants, and typically those are not reflective. So if they're reflective, you can honestly assume one very specific thing. Danae is soaking wet from the waist down. And, because turnabout is fair play, now Becca turned the camera on Danae, which is why we have this video. Danae, why are you crying? <laughs> She's all in the water, and her entire left leg is soaked. <laughs> Look at get a close up here. There we go. Yeah. <laughs> Danae said this took place on day four. Day four when all of her other clothes were already dirty. She falls into a creek. She slips off. Her shoes are soaked, but she is determined to continue hiking. 
although she says she only made it about 15 minutes before this scene took place. Two ladies out on a hike, documenting their lowest moments. It's stories like this that I thought of as I started crafting this sermon of what to do for the people who aren't quite at the place where they can say that the journey is worth it. What about those of us who are eating half Indian, half granola dinners on night two? What about those of us who are covered in creek water and trying our best not to cry as we continue on for the rest of the day? Because the good thing is this, and there's one more photo that comes with this, which is the Jeff sermon of it all. Here's both of them in the car after the hike, safe and sound, and now both of them smiling together. So there is proof that the journey is worth it, but we're not at this photo in our journey. Instead, we're still journeying together. Just said last week was week, uh, day 21. Seven days later makes this day 28 in this 40-day journey. The journey is and was and will continue to be, yet it still continues. There are craisins in our Indian food. Our shoes are soaking wet, and we're not done yet. And so as we continue on into Scripture, I'll ask you that you pray with me as we continue forward. Father God, you have promised us so many things. God, what you never promised us is that it would be easy. God, you never promised that our life would be filled only with light and with love. You never promised that we would fall into people and they would always love us back. You never promised that we would always avoid loss, failure, pain, or death. You never promised that things would go our way, that we would know where to go, or that the road would be smooth. But God, what you did promise is that through it all, that we wouldn't do it alone. You promised to foresee and endure by our side. You promised to carry us through the rough patches, and you promised us through every season of brokenness that you would bring us hope and truth and peace. So God, we claim those promises now. In Jesus' name, amen. So for the first two sermons in this series, and again last week we read from 1 Kings 19, I'm going to invite you to go back there now again. We're going to study the story of Elijah, and for those of you using the Bibles in the pews in front of you, you can flip quickly to page 354. There we read a story about Elijah, who at the beginning, which we've already covered, is how Elijah's life was threatened, how that threat made him want to die, how he was visited by an angel, and how he was revived by a nap, a treat, and a bottle of water. We read about how he too was taken on a 40-day journey just like us, to climb a 14er just like my friends. And the ESV says that the 14er that he climbed that day was named Horeb, or God Mountain. And this week we're going to move past that and into verses 9 through 13. And they begin with the voice of God speaking to a bedraggled Elijah who's lying in a cave. There in verse 9 it says, The word of the Lord came to Elijah and said to him, What are you doing here, Elijah? And then after Elijah's response, God continues and gives him a command. And that command is, go and stand out on the mountain before me. And there on day 40, Elijah records his own hiking breakdown moment. And it's not a selfie and it's not in 4K quality. 
But there we read this verse, and the only person that could have written it down is Elijah himself, so we know that he recorded his own moment. Verse 11 says, And the Lord passed by, and a great and strong wind tore through the mountains and broke in pieces the rocks. And then an earthquake, and after the earthquake, a fire. It's only after the tornado and the earthquake and the forest fire does God speak again to Elijah, and this time he does so in a whisper. Forty days later, Elijah hears the voice of God, to which we can all say, Amen, Hallelujah. Now, as we continue for this next part, I need, to, I need to pause for a moment, and I need to pause to ask you a genuine question. This is not rhetorical. It is meant to be answered. So let me ask this. For this next part, it would help me greatly to be able to ask permission for just a moment to take off my pastoral hat. To take off that hat and instead sit with you as a member of this church, to be not a pastor but a parishioner. In order to give you my testimony of my 40-day journey thus far, would it be all right if I did that? I know it changes the rules a bit. And I can say this, sometimes that'll make people uncomfortable. I watched my dad once have a very uncomfortable moment just like this once. Church that we were attending in Fresno, our pastor took his pastoral hat off and he talked about his depression. And in that moment, my dad had a really hard time with this and to no fault of my dad, but sometimes it's hard to hear somebody go through a struggle when you know that that person is supposed to know the end of the story. That you're the one who knows the book, so you know how this ends, so it's hard for me to believe for a moment that you're going through depression knowing that this is temporary. So I caution this and I ask carefully, by taking this off, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to peel back the layers and I'm going to be vulnerable with you for a moment. I'll put it back on at some point and I'll do my best to guide us together. But I want to stop in this place to be able to say, I'm not giving this sermon as somebody who has walked through it. I'm giving this sermon as somebody on day 28 walking with you. Is that fair? All right. So let me give you, let me give you my understanding of what, what, is, what has gone on so far. Because when I introduced this mini-series, it was both something that I thought we could do together as a church, but it's also something that I was going through myself. Jeff said, well, preach on whatever is on your heart, which he almost always does to me. And at that time, what was on my heart was really difficult. It was a lot of strife and a lot of turmoil. And some of you know that story. And for those who don't, I'm going to introduce you to some of it. But as I was going through this journey, not sure of what God was going to do next, I stepped into this moment. You'll remember this. I preached on July 30th. The goal was to preach the next week on August 6th. On that day, I was going to make the declaration, God, I'm going with you on this journey. I'd like to be spiritually transformed in this moment, and I'd like for the church to have this moment as well. So let's walk into this place. And on the first day I started writing the sermon, after the 30th, I started writing that next sermon August 3rd, and I started coughing on the 4th. The 40-day journey was supposed to start on August 6th. My forest fire, which began in my lungs in the form of COVID, began on the 5th. And unlike Elijah, I didn't get to hear the voice of God first. I got hit with a forest fire. And so for 10 straight days, and for those of you who've had COVID, understand what you've been through, it was awful. 
I was coughing and delusional, and at one point, I was not sure I was still a human. I was pretty sure I was the start of the zombie apocalypse. And that made for some weird dreams when I was able to sleep. And it was incredibly tough, and it was hard, and it was, it, by design, you're isolated in that moment. And so for 10 days, I sat in that space working through what this was going to do. And for those of you who know my his, uh, history with health, they always say that COVID's worse for the people who have pre... Uh, oh, I forgot the word. Mark, what's the word? If you have a condition... A precondition. I should have just gone with that. That made way more sense in my head. But now that a doctor said it, I feel better. I had preconditions like a heart attack and diabetes. Cancer runs in my family. So getting COVID wasn't just a uh-oh. It was a oh no. I wonder whether or not I'm going to make it through this forest fire. And so for 10 days I endured. And that was the start of my 40-day journey. And I was grateful to have somebody like Kyle who could sit in this place and preach a sermon in order to give a message that I wanted to build into this so that we could have this moment together. That's August 6th. On August 14th, still under this sickness, still battling this virus, I checked the mail. And on the 14th of August, I got a letter from the city of Boulder alerting me to the fact that my case had been heard before a court. My case that I wasn't present for because that was part of the agreement was a divorce settlement. And on August 14th, I got a letter in the mail saying, we heard your case. We've gone through the process. We've ratified all this information. Starting on August 10th, you are no longer legally married to this other person. And the earth started to shake beneath me. Now, it shook twice, and I'll give a little bit more context to that. The 14th is already a problematic day because they weren't supposed to hear the case until the 16th. The state of Colorado requires that when you file paperwork that you wait 67 days in what's known as a cooling-off period in case anyone changes their mind. We'll give you 67 days to make that choice. On the 67th day, we'll hear your case, after which just know, unless somebody has intervened, that case will be heard. 14th is two days before the 16th, which means we only waited 65 days to finish this marriage. What's even worse is that August 10th is not just a date. August 10th is the date of our wedding. And so our marriage lasted exactly eight years to the day. So as it rocked through, there were rocks around me splitting in half. My lungs still on fire, going through this moment, trying to figure out what does survival look like because everything turns upside down, even when you think you're ready. I don't know if anybody has been through this, and my prayers are with you if you have because it's painful. You know that it's coming, and when it shows up, it's somehow just as painful as the first time you heard it. This is days into this 40-day journey and already a fire and an earthquake. And here I am reading the book of Elijah and thinking to myself, they come in threes, don't they? Now I can say this, we're 28 in days into this journey and I have not felt the effects of a tornado. But we're only 28 days into this journey and there's a potential for a tornado still. And that's scary. 
and that's grueling and it's tough and it feels worse than, than wet pants and soggy socks. But sometimes it leads you to a place that maybe if I had my camera open, you would have seen a, a crying video from me. Because this is the journey. This is not something I expected. This is not something I would have necessarily asked for. I don't know that I would have signed up knowing that this is what the 40-day journey was going to feel like for me. But this is what it is. And this is what happens when you ask God to take you through a transformation. And I can tell you with confidence, if you ask for it, he'll do it. And it's painful. And I'm not at the point yet where I'm with Jeff to be able to say, it's worth it. Right now, it's, it's tough. Right now, for me, it's not really well in my soul, which is why, had I shown up on the 6, let me be transparent for just another moment, I would not have been one of the people who went over to the community room. For me, reading Paul's words and recognizing that in order to take communion, you have to be right with the people in your life to have account of all of these things, I had not forgiven people in my life. And so I would not have been ready on the 6th to take communion. I would have sat here with you, and I would have eaten cake, and I would have had some water, and I would have rested, because that was going to subsist for the next 40 days. And what's tough is I didn't even get cake in this story, Michael. I just got divorce paperwork without the treats, which is tough. So here we are in the middle of this series, and here we are walking through these disasters, and maybe your story sounds like mine. Maybe your story is in the same spot as mine is, 28 days into it, dealing with natural disasters in your life. Some of you might still be in a place where you can say the journey is worth it. I've seen it. I sat at the table. The body is there to take and to eat, and I have eaten from that table, and it is good. Right now, maybe like me, all you can muster is the journey is difficult and it's still not over. Jeff Sermon said that your attitude matters in all of these things. And I want to move that for a second. I'm going to put my pastoral hat back on. And as I do so, I just want to say thank you just for that opportunity to have this conversation, to talk, go through this together. I'd love to hear your story as well, to give you a safe place as you did for me talk through it, and I hope you can find somebody else to do that for you as well. But as we dive back into these things, I want to take another look at, at, at Jeff's look at this. So it says, his, your attitude is what matters. If you can control your attitude, it can control your direction. And in this moment sitting here, I remember thinking my attitude is horrible. My attitude is all over the place. In a sermon that said, if you breathe in Jesus, you can breathe out anxiety, you can breathe out your strife. And I remember sitting here not being able to catch my breath. But in then, in that moment, 21 days in, it was a reminder that we're only halfway through this journey. But it was also a reminder that halfway through this journey, maybe like me, you felt like you were failing. Because it's 28 days in for me and I still haven't heard the voice of God. It's 28 days in and I'm still bracing for a tornado. Now, giving credit to Jeff where his credit is due, even in these failures, he gave a couple of plot points that I want to reiterate here. For those of you who are on a 28-day journey, charging towards the 40th and aren't there yet. Because he talks about the identity of what comes before and what comes after. And what happens in the middle is the therefore. 
And the therefore for me wasn't as pretty. The therefore for me I started to call the chaos chasm of what we were and what we're going to be and this depression that we're in in the middle where chaos seems to ensue. But in doing that, my studies brought me into a forward-facing attitude in the form of how I talk about my chaos, how I understand internally what my chaos is, and how to express it outwardly. And I found that the easiest way to do it is to look into the sentences where I'm using the word still. Where and how you use the word still does actually change your attitude. I'm not at the journey is worth it. I'm at the journey is difficult and it's still not over. Still, if I articulate it with despair, the journey is difficult and I'm still not over. When articulated in that despair, it tilts my attitude towards hopelessness. But if I pronounce still with an attitude of hope, then that breeds positivity. The journey is difficult but it's still not over. Which means that it's not done, which means that there's something unfinished. Like a fan in the fourth quarter and your team is down by 10 points, you know that attitude. This game is still not over. As long as my guy has the ball, there's a chance that we can win. And using that attitude towards hopefulness changes my attitude and changes my outlook. Likewise, on the sentiment that it's day 28 and still I have not heard the voice of God, when I speak that with incredulity, my attitude leans towards the indebtedness that I feel like God owes me something, that there's this inheritance that he's withholding. It's day 28 and I still haven't heard your voice? Change how you say it and you say it softly but with confidence. Know that it's day 28 and still no voice of the Lord. But there it builds an attitude of anticipation. A word that we used before, which was prolepsis, which is the belief that he hasn't spoken yet, but I will live in the reality that he will speak. And if I believe that he will speak, then I can act as if he has already spoken. Where and how you speak the identity of still will change your attitude. Jeff is absolutely right about that. Where you play still in your sentence changes the posture of your faith. It changes your personal attitude. It changes the atmosphere of those around you. But I want to add this, and this is maybe the hope for all of us, the good news that we can pin this to. The thing that I have learned is that when you do it in your own sentence, it does good things. But I'm here to tell you that if you give Jesus the ability to speak the word still into your life and you let him place it where and how he wants it, it doesn't just change your attitude. It doesn't just change your faith. It changes absolutely everything. Patty read this earlier this morning. Mark chapter 4, verses 35 through 39. It tells a story of a group of men who are stuck in a storm. They are on the verge of dying inside of this storm. You'll find the story in page 998 in the Bible in front of you. I'm going to read it here, starting in verse 35. It says, On that day... When evening had come, he said to them, let us go across to the other side. And leaving the crowd, they took him with them in the boat, just as he was. And the other boats were with him. And a great windstorm arose, and the waves were breaking into the boat, so that the boat was already filling. But he was in the stern, asleep on the cushion. And they woke him and said to him, teacher, do you not care that we are dying? And he awoke and rebuked the wind and said to the sea, 
peace. And as Patty added, hush. Be still. And it was then when he spoke that word still, when and how Jesus said it, the wind ceased. And there was a great calm. The good news here is that when Jesus speaks it, that is when storms are gone and hope is lost. As we sang in the song last week, Jared talked about this in the, in the interlude. He talked about the idea that in this song, the great I am, Jesus was and is and always has been the lighthouse in the storm. We sang the words, you are still the voice that I look for, I listen for. Jesus was and is and will be the refuge where I run. And in response, we sang, you are still my portion, my reward. There is good news in that still. There is good news in that for us today. And there is good news even in the middle of a storm. The tough thing here is that this, not every storm is stilled in this story. And I don't want to just sprinkle fairy dust and talk about how beautiful everything is. Because it's not. Because the reality is this. If you keep reading and you go through verse 40, it said to them after he has created this great storm, Jesus speaks the word still again. And creates another storm, only this one a spiritual one. He said to them, why are you so afraid? Have you still no faith? And that word still does something different. That word still doesn't necessarily feel like a portion or a reward. What it does is start those men on a 40-day journey. They are halfway across this lake. And God is with them through all of it. And they're going to learn a lesson by the time they get to the other side. Japheth taught us this term. It's the identity of the full stop. Jesus, full stop, all, full stop. The full stop is a punctuation mark. It's a period, meaning that it's a full and complete thought. But for the men on this boat and for those of us 28 days into this story and for Elijah who is in the middle of many different battles, it's not a full stop. Instead, it's what we know in grammar as a semicolon. It's a punctuation mark that indicates a pause. It's more than a comma, but less than a period. It's a beat between what was and what is about to be. In 2018, the semicolon had a, uh, a spot in culture beyond just the grammar books. It became a message of affirmation and a message of solidarity with those who had dealt with suicide, with depression, with addiction, and other mental health issues. It became a marker that became a tattoo Many people started to put a semicolon onto their own bodies as a reminder of the things that they were going through. It's a marker in the form of a tattoo for those who made a decision to end their life, only to find that there was suddenly a pause in that plan. A reminder that despite all the things that they're going through, that this is not the end of their sentence, because they are in fact still here. This semicolon brings us back to the story of Elijah, which is where I want to end today. Elijah has his own semicolon. You can see it on page 354. Elijah, once realizing that he is about to be killed, he is about to be overtaken, Elijah says the words, it is enough. And what do you see right after that word? It's a semicolon. 
a pause. And there in that moment, Elijah pauses before he speaks the words, now, O Lord, take away my life. Before the semicolon is death, and after it is the name of the Lord, and which Elijah calls upon. From thoughts of suicide to calling on the Lord, Elijah didn't know it then, but Elijah's life was only in a pause. A pause that would lead him to hear the voice of God who still speaks in his life. Now the Bible doesn't say exactly what Elijah hears, but I found this to be really interesting in my study and I wanna bring it to your attention. Elijah doesn't know what the whisper is when he is in the cave, and we find out it's because he's not close enough to it. Verse 13 says this, it says, Elijah hears the low whisper, he wraps his face in a cloak and he makes his way out to the entrance of the cave. Now moments before this, he heard the voice of God, that voice of God said, Elijah, why are you here? He gives an answer and then God gives him a command. Get out of the cave and come stand with me out on the face of this mountain. Then all of these things take place and then Jesus repeats himself in this spot. What's very interesting about the repeat is that there's something about it in that Elijah only after the forest fire, after the earthquake, after the tornado, does he actually leave the cave. He was commanded to get up and he didn't and he cowered instead and God put this thing out there which leads me to this and I want to be careful with this because it's not in scripture but I'm going to make an assumption about what could be in there. And the assumption is this, God is an all-loving God. God is an all-knowing God and God wants what's best for his people. If that much is true, then why would God ask Elijah to walk out onto the face of a mountain to endure a forest fire, an earthquake, and a tornado without any protection. I posit this. I believe that Elijah was meant to step out of the cave to have a moment with God in order to understand something very important, that Elijah is actually not as weak as he thinks he is, that he was trying to teach Elijah a lesson, and maybe it comes in the form of a conversation like this. God says to Elijah, Elijah, what are you doing here? To which Elijah says, I'm hiding. God says, why? Elijah says, because I'm scared. Of what, Elijah? Of Jezebel. And I'm afraid of death. And I don't want to be a disgrace. And I'm afraid of being a bad prophet. To which God says, get up. And Elijah says, okay. God says, go outside. Elijah says, why? God says, I want to show you something. It's there then that scripture picks back up and it says that God passes by Elijah where he should have been standing, exposed in the open. And in passing by, God's presence results in a fire, a wind, and a seismic shift. But Elijah misses it, which is why I think God repeats himself. Coming out of the cave, God reiterates, Elijah, what are you still doing here, man? Elijah says, hiding. Why? Because I'm scared of what? Of Jezebel, Elijah. Let me ask you this, how'd you get here? Elijah says, I walked. For how long? A little over a month. And what sustained you? Some cake and some water. Elijah, does that make sense to you? No. To which God says, Anything else you've endured, Elijah? Elijah says, I, I just survived a forest fire and an earthquake and a tornado. 
God says, how'd you do that? Elijah said, I hid in, I hid in that hole. God asked him, does that make sense to you, Elijah? No. <laughs> Elijah, why are you still here? Why are you still hiding from something you're actually able to endure? Elijah, you've proven that you're stronger than starvation and exposure and dehydration. Elijah, you're fireproof. You can't be torn from the ground. You can't be broken like these stones. To which Elijah says, yeah. Hmm. Elijah's story is not over. He still has more to travel, more to do, more life to live. And God gives him a mission because he still has more ministry to fulfill. His 40 days are done and he walks away transformed by his experience there on the mountain. For us, it's day 28. In 14 days, this journey ends. I still haven't heard the voice of God. I'm still bracing for a tornado. I don't know what's facing you, but I know this, there will still be trials. But God is still with me. God is still with you. That's a promise. That's a promise he made then to Elijah and he makes today and he keeps them both. Some days are going to be harder than others. Some days my faith still sags into the chaos chasm. There's more ahead for us as we push to the finish. And along the way, you may fall into a creek. You may add craisins to your Indian food. But be encouraged. Be encouraged by the faith and the belief that God is still speaking truth. Right now, it's a low whisper. But that message becomes super clear as you emerge out of whatever cave you're hiding in. Know that there's still a place for you at his table. And at his right side, he will say to you, this is my body, broken for you, for you. So take it and eat it. It's still a two-week journey before we get to that table. And I am so looking forward to not hiking anymore, to not enduring all of this. I am so looking forward to washing your feet and to hearing the story of how that much dirt got onto it, of sitting next to you and taking and eating from the communion table. The journey is difficult, and we still are not done. But there is still hope, courage, and peace to you.